Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What did police officers see over a New Hampshire field on September 3rd, 1965? How did the military respond? Why is the Exeter at New Hampshire area so fraught with UFO sightings? Greetings and welcome to the 861st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those specie, spacey questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And today, as we mark the 55th uh, anniversary of the incident at Exeter, well, we bring you a very special guest who has seldom been heard on the air. We welcome your calls today. The number is... Oh, actually, we don't welcome your calls today, unfortunately, uh, as the, tel- the lines are are tied up, so oh. if you do have any questions for us, you can... You I can thought sh- it defaulted to the second line. No, 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 no. Uh, we, we only have the one line, unfortunately. Okay, well, you'll have to email or whatever. Ben will tell you yes. about that. Yes, so we have, we have emails. Uh, Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com, or you can contact us via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Yeah, uh, well, that is, that only is. been on the air here 12 years. What the heck do I know, right? Well, hey, you know, you're not behind the, the board here. Well, uh, that's I, true. Instead of behind the paranormal, it's behind the board. Right. So yeah. anyway, after serving in the U.S. Marine Corps, Clinton Rand began a 30-year career in law enforcement as a trooper with the Massachusetts State Police. During college and law school, he was a sergeant, shift commander, and prosecutor in the Hampton, New Hampshire Police Department. He spent 23 years as an FBI special agent. In addition to his investigative duties, he was a member of the FBI's first SWAT team, a physical fitness instructor slash examiner, a helicopter rappel instructor, and a police instructor. After retiring from the FBI, Mr. Rand joined the criminal justice faculty at St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire, where he also coached the varsity ski team. He chaired the research committee of the New England Community Crime Prevention Partnership and was an adjunct instructor in community policing and policing styles at the Boston Police Academy. So, Clinton Rand, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Good afternoon. No, well, it's it's great great to have you with us. Uh, so, first of all, thank you for your service, um, and I, I guess we'll we'll hop right into it. So, take us through the events of September third, nineteen sixty five, and the part that you played in it. September third was uh, Friday of Labor Day weekend, which was traditionally the uh, uh, the mark of the end of the summer for the uh, for the beach traffic for the beach goers. Um, I was a, uh, a student at the University of New Hampshire, and I also worked uh, full-time on the police department. During the school year, I worked the midnight shift. And on that, this particular Friday night of September 3rd, I was on the, uh, on the midnight shift. I had uh, two patrol cars out, one covering the beach area, um, with one uh, one officer with about four years of experience. And in the town, which was about two miles away, the town of Hampton, I had another cruiser with two officers, uh, both veterans. Um, they worked summers on the police department and uh, part-time during the school year as they were both high school teachers, one a... Uh, uh, a history teacher and a track coach, and the other was a uh, an industrial arts teacher. On that particular night, we had had an arrest, and uh, by the uh, by the officer working on the beach, 
and I called the bail bond when the bail was in the uh, was in the police station bailing out the individual who'd been arrested. And uh, Stan uh, had hung around, and we were having a coffee, and we were chatting. It was uh, a bit after midnight, and the phone rang, and it was the night operator. This was prior to cell phones or portable phones. It was the night operator, and she said that there had she had received a call, uh, a frantic call from a man who said he was calling from Route 1 in Hampton and that he was being chased by a flying saucer. She said he was extremely agitated, upset, and then he um, he didn't finish his conversation. He just dropped the dropped the uh, dropped the phone and took off. I radioed the uh, the two officers who were in the town of Hampton and told them what the because I was. Um, being a little bit uh, sarcastic about it, uh, and I told them to see if they could find a flying saucer that, it's, that was chasing a, uh, a gentleman up and down Route 1. <laughs> and they did find the uh, the phone booth. Um, it was on Route 1 near the intersection of Route 101 and east-west east, uh, uh, two-lane road that... Um, that somebody had been in and had left the, the phone dangling, uh, but they couldn't find uh, the gentleman that had made the call. So <clears throat> they continued on on their duties, and Stan, the bailiff, and I continued uh, our conversation. The Exeter Police Department, which was um, inland, west of the town of Hampton, the adjacent town, but uh, um, their night shift uh, consisted, I think, two officers and the desk officers, similar to our situation. We were on the same frequency, the same radio frequency, so I could hear the calls that, uh, that they were making. They, um, one of the officers got a call from the desk officer, and uh, this officer's name was Gene Bertrand in the cruiser, and uh, and uh, Sergeant Toland was on the desk, and he told uh, the the desk officer told the police officer in the cruiser that there was a gentleman in the station, and that he had reported uh, a similar incident where he had seen a uh, flying saucer. I believe is what he described, uh, on 150 in the town adjacent to Exeter. And he was quite frantic. And he called Officer Bertrand into the station to meet the lad and um, to take him out where he said he had seen the saucer. Now, that would be Norman Muscarello, right? Uh, correct. The, the young, young man. man. Yeah, okay. Right. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Not at all. I think that he was uh, not a Muscarello. I think he was an 18-year-old uh, recent graduate from high school who was waiting uh, to enter the Navy. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
so I was uh, uh, Stan, the bailiff, um, um, who was still with me. We heard the conversation on the radio, and so we <clears throat> we just listened in, and we heard uh, Officer Bertrand, short time later, call from Route 150 in the vicinity of the uh, of where he had uh, where Muscarello had said that he had seen a UFO. And, of course, uh, Officer Bertrand, who was a fairly long-time veteran police officer, uh, radioed in that he was in the area, that he was getting out of his cruiser, that he would be uh, out of touch for a short while, and that if he didn't get back, that he was probably in the UFO on his way to Mars. <laughs> or something to that effect. And... and uh, so there was radio silence, and I went back to talking to uh, to my guest, Stan. About ten or fifteen minutes later, Bertrand came back on the uh, on the radio, and he was a, a, a total. Uh, he was he was just hollering into the radio. My gosh, I've seen this, and I, I can't believe it. And it's doing this, and it's just taking off. It, it was obviously something that had upset him a great deal. And um, so I called my two cruisers, told them what was going on. <clears throat> and the uh, the one on the on the uh, on the on the beach, which was close, he was close to the station. So he came into the station. We had a conversation about what was going on. And then uh, a short while after that, <clears throat> the two officers who were working the town, patrolling the town area, came into the station, which is unusual. They don't usually come down to the station until the end of their shift. And uh, their names were uh, uh, John and Harold. <clears throat> These were the school teachers, uh, this, the uh, uh, patrolmen. Who came, they came into the station, and they said, look, um, I said, is there anything out there? And say, look, you know, we saw something out there. It looked like a saucer. It had red lights. And it was the same description of the UFO that uh, Muscarella had seen. But they said, if anybody ever asks us, we'll deny ever having seen this. And uh, they left the station, and they took off. And then the, uh, the patrolman who was working, Roby, his name was, who was working the beach area, said, I'm going to take a ride up to Shaw's Hill, which was the highest point in the area, and uh, see if I can see anything. And he left. Um, a short while later, I got a call from the desk sergeant in, uh, in Exeter, Scratch Toland, and we discussed what was going on, what we had seen, and he said that Bertrand was very upset. Uh, with whatever it was, and that uh, the other officer, uh, David Hunt from Exeter also, in, a, in another cruiser, had gone over the area, and he had seen the same thing, and they both described described it as a large uh, saucer with uh, rotating lights, uh, red lights on the rim, and uh, that it was hovering in a field off of Route 150. And uh, that was uh, 
that was pretty much the extent of, uh, oh, I did call the um, PZ Air Force Base was about uh, 10 miles north of both towns, Hampton and Exeter. And yeah, in Portsmouth, with, yeah. Correct. Um, in Portsmouth, it was uh, a large air base. It was an SAC, a Strategic Air Command base, which meant that it had air traffic 24 hours. It was, it was constantly take off because they kept their... Um, they kept the uh, heavy bombers flying in the event of an attack that would destroy the planes that were on the ground. So they always had planes flying. And the uh, we were just used to constantly hearing. Um, at the time, they were B-47s. Um, they were large, heavy bombers. Um, I think the B-47s were, um, they were, I think they had six turbojets. They were very loud. And uh, they also had tankers. They had the um, KC-97 Strato freighters, which were also a very large uh, plane that had four uh, radial piston uh, engines. Those were constantly, constantly flying. Uh, we were just south of the traffic pattern. The planes would fly out over the Atlantic Ocean, uh, do a 180, and that would be their final approach. They would come in and land at Chief Air Force Base. I called the duty officer, and I told him what was going on. <clears throat> he was very serious, and he would say he would take, he would take care of it. A short while, probably 15 to 20 minutes Later, uh, we heard um, jet fighters flying in our area. We could hear mm-hmm. them overhead. We went outside and looked. We could we could see the the, uh, the fighters. I think there were two of them flying. We couldn't tell what they were, but um, they had scrambled apparently planes and uh, they were flying in the uh, in the area. We have no idea. They never reported back to us, and they never called. Uh, to let us know what uh, if they had made any sort of a sighting. Our information was that they uh, did pick this thing up on radar, which is why they scrambled the planes. Now, whether that's correct, I, I, I don't know, but there was a lot of UFO activity around that vicinity, other you know, as well as this. So there were a number of sightings following this incident. Uh, there were a number of people that came in the station, and because Hampton is, and, and Exeter also, they're fairly small towns. Mm. Five population is probably 5,000, 6,000 um, year round, and then during the summer, the, uh, the beach traffic uh, goes up into the uh, hundred thousands. But during, during the winter, and there was a lot of conversation. I mean, the, the newspaper, the local newspaper, the Hampton Union Leader, um, the Exeter papers and, uh, and and other papers were in uh, looking for information, and um, there was a lot of activity, and a lot of people came in to report that. Uh, and one particular woman, uh, I think her name was Virginia Hale. She was a stringer for uh, UPI 
she came in and she said that she had seen it, that it actually had landed in her field and she had made a mark on her kitchen window with a, with a oh, bar wow. of soap um, but so that she could point out where uh, where the thing had, uh, had landed. But there were about 60, around 60 sightings um, in the next few days of things that were all described pretty much the same as what it was that Burton and uh, Muscarella had seen. Oh, I didn't realize there were that many. Wow. Now, you, you're in, uh, um, are you, is that what, what you had to say? Because I, st- I want to start with the questions. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Uh, thanks, Clint. Um, now, your initial reaction to the reports was skepticism. Uh, could you describe how you felt when you heard this? Yeah, um, I, I, skepticism, yeah, I, I would say there had been another incident uh, four or five years prior to that. A couple had uh, uh, said that they had seen a UFO and had actually been uh, uh, abducted. At Betty and Barney Hill. Correct. Okay, yeah, so... so. So there was some, yeah, there, there was some skepticism, but I must say that as the evening progressed, it it it, it, it was apparent that that something um, that, you know, that, that that there was something beyond what uh, what later a lot of the uh, uh, the military and some of the other pundits had claimed that it was marsh gas. Or it was uh, it was planes or helicopters. Um, I, in my mind, could pretty much rule out anything. Um, you know that they were claiming it might have been. So, yes, I started out quite skeptical, but uh, I I was convinced. I think when when this was over, that that, that something had uh, there was something in the area that uh, could be. Described as a as a UFO. So, at, at what point in the evening um, did did your did your opinion change? Because it sounds like the the sort of beginning of of this of this event was kind of met with you know kind of jokes. You know, oh, I must have gone back to Mars. And at, at what point did it start to become real, if you will? I think when the two officers um, that were working uh, the cruiser in the uptown area drove all the way down to uh, to the police station and came in and said that they had seen something. And what they described was, and, and again, um, you know, those of us who lived in the area and had been there, we were, we were used to, um, you know, planes in the traffic pattern. We were used to what was in the area where, where people started saying, oh, well, you know, it's just this, it's just that. Um, that was... That you know, it was something from P's Air Force Base, or a B forty seven, or a B fifty. So that was just ridiculous. Uh, uh, I, I a uh, little bit uh, later on, the PSYCOP, um, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. Uh, I used to belong to that, but I left it in the seventies because I just I didn't think they were honest. Suggested that it was a tanker and uh, a B forty seven from P's that was. In the midst of refueling, and of course, you know the usual uh, analysis from armchair investigators who weren't there, 
and uh, didn't re- didn't apparently appreciate the fact that you folks lived in an area where, as you yourself said, Clint, is constant uh, coming and going, constant air activity from the base. And so, you I mean, certainly you would know that. So I just wanted to mention that. But uh, we have a question from our listener in uh, Bogota, Colombia, Peter, who writes in uh, very good questions almost every week. Ben? Yeah, he's very, pretty consistent, actually. Um, so, Big uh, help. Honorary so, co-host. So Peter uh, writes to us, uh, do you have any information on the Exeter case that has not been previously released that you could share now? Not, not really. Um, I, I would say that the uh, the book by uh, by John Fuller, the incident at Exeter, um, is pretty comprehensive. However, there are some things that are missing from that book. The the additional things uh, to uh, you know, to respond to the question, would be the people who were not directly involved on the third, who later had seen, um, you know, there had been there had been sightings. As I said, uh, I think over sixty was the count. But um, when John Fuller came to Exeter. And he spoke with the two officers, Bertram and uh, and the desk officer, uh, Bertram Hunt and uh, and Toland. He came over to Hampton uh, after two or three days in the area. He came in after midnight, and he spoke to the officer who was on the desk that night, whose name was Joe Fonsworth. Joe was also a sergeant. He'd been on the on the midnight shift for a long time. I had replaced him, and he worked on the days that I wasn't working, the two days that I had off. Joe was an older gentleman, um, and when Fuller came to the police station and went and talked to Joe, he assumed that Joe Fonsworth was the officer that was on the desk the night of uh, of the uh, of the incident in Exeter, and that wasn't the case. And I'm not sure if Farnsworth knew that he wasn't on the desk that night or what. But I was. I, nobody ever spoke to me, uh, uh, John Fuller, of none of, none of the cohorts that he worked with, um, that he interviewed on that book. Never questioned me, never spoke to me, never spoke to the two officers who were in the car hmm. uh, uptown or the officer, or Stan Brown, who was the name of the bailiff, who was a local businessman, who also was there that night, but who also knew everybody in town and in the area. He owned the local Western Auto store, and he knew, and he spoke to many people after that and, and none of us were ever interviewed I didn't know that Fuller had come and had done the interview so I, I couldn't contact him at the time and tell him look uh, um, you know you didn't talk to me but I would like to tell you what my version uh, from my perspective was that never happened hmm. 
Well, there's a, there's a second question, which uh, in a way I think Clint has answered somewhat. But uh. I guess I guess we could kind of ask ask for more detail. So you, you already mentioned sort of the the military involvement from Pease, um, but uh, Peter goes on to ask: uh, Were UFOs being uh, seen around nearby military bases during the same time? Back then, the military was very uh, closed. Uh, to give out any information. So if there were sightings, I would not have known. And it wasn't something that today they have loosened up quite a bit. Actually, they've loosened up an awful lot. But back then, um, this was top-secret classified information. So no, I don't have any additional information. Uh, And the last question Peter has is, uh, have you been involved in any other UFO cases? No, n- not to this extent. I have seen things, um, you know, I have, I have, you know, there have been fighting in, in, in my, my travels with my, uh, my, my, uh, my career with the, with the government. I, I worked in Chicago, Philadelphia, New York City, Boston, West Coast, and, you know, over the course of, I had seen things that other people had seen, but no. Nothing to this to the to the degree to the extent that uh, that I was involved with the incident in Exeter. Okay, well, on that note, we will take our bottom of the hour break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON twelve forty AM and ninety nine five FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, and we'll be right back with our fascinating guest Clinton Rand uh, speaking about the incident at Exeter. Thank you very much, and stick with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late-night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's Blackstone River Valley. And we are speaking today uh, about the 55th anniversary, or almost, <coughs> excuse me, uh, of the incident at Exeter, took place in 1965, uh, with Clinton Rand, who was one of the police officials who was on the desk that night uh, and heard the whole uh, thing going down here. So, um Clinton, there are uh, issues uh, with the military in the sense that um, uh, I understand there were some interviews conducted by Air Force personnel uh, after the case. Is that correct? There were, but I was never interviewed. Hmm, okay. All right. Um, I, and I, I'm looking, there's a question from a listener here that has uh, come in since then. and uh, This is from... Chris, whom I believe lives in New Hampshire, um, can't wait to listen to this broadcast. Would love to know how this experience affected uh, your experience, Clint, as an officer going forward. I suppose Chris is asking, what did it do to your point of view, and how did it change? Did it change your life in any way? I can't say it changed my life. I will say that it. it, it it definitely um, 
definitely changed my, uh, you know, my perspective on uh, on the UFO situation. I don't think there's any doubt that uh, that that evening there was something there that, you know, of, of, of the three possibilities that I can think of, you know, number one being an experimental aircraft, um, you know, a, a, a U.S., United States uh, experimental aircraft, that being extremely unlikely due to the fact that a lot of these sightings, and that one in particular when I was, uh, when I was working, were in populated areas, number one. Uh, number two, there, there were, nobody ever mentioned um, lights that would be characteristic of a, um, uh, of a U.S. aircraft, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the red and uh, green lights, the wing lights, and the tail lights um, that would be, even on an experimental aircraft, for safety's sake, especially at night, um, you know, the second that it was, you know, the second possibility that it was something from a foreign, uh, a foreign government aircraft, um, that would seem to be extremely unlikely, uh, given the nature of the, you know, the fact that it would be, uh, you know, a violation of, uh, of sovereign airspace, which leaves, you know, the fact that it was probably uh, something extra, t- <laughs> extra, uh, uh, terrestrial um, uh, and, and that's sort of what it left me with that, that there are things there that are extraterrestrial yeah all right well the um, site today is looks uh, from photographs and, and I've been by it myself uh, it looks not, not really much different from it did from when it did in those days. Uh, is the same family by any chance still uh, the owners of the owners of that farm? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. All right. And um, did you ever hear? And I, I know that um, you know if you have a security clearance, you know you're not going to talk about this. But um, did you uh, ever hear anything on the side about UFOs in in the course of your service uh, with law enforcement uh, or any any of that sort of thing? Um, because you know you do hear things here and there, and you don't know if it's legitimate or not. But uh, did you ever hear anything, any kind of scuttlebutt, as you'd say, uh, about uh, UFOs of other kinds in other places as you uh, did your work for the FBI around the country? No, I can't say. And I'm speaking honestly now. No, I can't say that I ever really did. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, you know that sort of thing is need to know only, anyway. So, I mean, you would unless you're directly involved, you wouldn't, and then you wouldn't be able to talk about it anyhow. Uh, oh yes. Um, so I guess. Oh, are you asking about the the, the caller? Is that the question? Well, yeah, I'm just wondering if. Uh, oh no, Susan Spooler. It was. Yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, I told her that we cannot have her on the air, unfortunately. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, Susan, the uh, the organizer of the um, uh, Greater New England UFO Conference, which is uh, is going to proceed in in a different form this year. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. That that was that was that was sort of the 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 scuttlebutt of why I was in the other room. If that, oh, okay. If that is your question. Um. So do we? I, I did step out of the room, so I'm not quite sure if we asked this already. Uh. But. 
Clint, what is your opinion of UFOs today? After all of this, everything you've experienced, your illustrious career in law enforcement, what's kind of your 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 thoughts and feelings on on the subject? Um, in a nutshell, I think they exist. That's clear, straight to the point. <laughs> well, the question is, what are they? I mean, the the, the extraterrestrial explanation is is plausible. Uh, but there are many other things, and, and one of our specialties is to look at crossover phenomena, as they're called. And uh, I'm sure you've met Kathy Marden, who's a native of the area and uh, <clears throat> also is a, uh, a regular at the Exeter UFO Festival, which we're missing very much uh, last weekend. It would, would have occurred. Uh, and um, she contacts us when people have... Sometimes the UFO sightings uh, and or abduction phenomena, and all of a sudden things start throwing their fine china around the house, like as in a poltergeist uh, sort of thing that you wouldn't usually associate with UFOs. So we find a lot of connections there, but but that's uh, as may be. Um, we should point out, too, that one of the reasons we're having uh, Clint on the air today was to honor the 55th anniversary of the incident, uh, which is in turn commemorated by the UFO Festival that takes place in Exeter every year, except for this year because of the pandemic. Uh, and uh, I first met Clint, I think you you did too, uh, Ben, at our book table at the event, uh, I believe it was two years ago. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, his, his name was on our list uh, for all that time, and we finally got in touch with him, and we're really, really happy that, that he agreed to be on the show, and that we've had some very pleasant conversations uh, off the air, too. So, Clint, why is it your opinion that there's so much interest, not, maybe not just interest, but so many incidents in the Exeter area, the Seacoast area in general, when it comes to UFOs? Um, and, and before you answer that, um, some listeners may not realize that the uh, the heavy bomber unit that Clint was referring to at Pease Air Force Base in uh, in Portsmouth was actually uh, had been the the uh, 509th that had been transferred from Roswell, New Mexico, uh, some years after the much vaunted crash there that was supposedly a UFO, and uh, I find that really remarkably coincidental in a way, although th- they. Uh, at the time of the Roswell incident, we were the only unit authorized to uh, manage the uh, nuclear nuclear arsenal, and uh, New Mexico is not is uh, not not very close to the Soviet Union, and uh, New Hampshire is far closer. So maybe that's that's probably why they moved them there. Um, is that a coincidence? Do you think, uh, Clint? And also, you know, why again do you think there are so many incidents um, in the seacoast area, or do you have an opinion on that? Uh, I, I, I don't have an educated opinion. Um, I think um, another thing that that influenced or influenced me that uh, surprised me was um, I thought the uh, the Betty and Bonnie Hill incident um, was uh, was was pretty uh, strange, and I thought they were um, I thought they were publicity seekers. Hmm. Uh, the Betty and Bonnie Hill, and uh, I learned fairly recently that they weren't. That they never really talked about the fact that they had been abducted, thought they had been inducted, uh, except to very close friends and to a, a, a 
psychiatric analyst that they spoke to in Boston, it was four or five years after the incident that they began speaking and then um, sort of only officially they would they would give uh, they would give talks but they always said that they were telling they would tell what they knew happened but what from the point that they thought that they had been abducted or whatever they didn't claim that they knew that they had been abducted but they did have bad dreams and memories of something having happened, but they never claimed that that was true, and that impressed me quite a bit. Yeah, uh, the fact that I, I, as I said, I thought they were publicity seekers, uh, but apparently they didn't—they uh, didn't want to speak of that at all. They were very troubled after that, after the incident, whatever it was, and uh, they did seek psychiatric, and they had somebody who was. Uh, claimed uh, uh, very highly respected uh, psychiatrist or, uh, in the field. Yeah, and uh, under hypnosis, um, th- they told the story of being abducted, and I believe that occurred up uh, closer to Franconia Notch. It wasn't really, but but they did live in the Exeter area, I believe. Am I correct? They lived in southern, yeah, they lived in the southern part of the state. They were coming down, I think, from a, a trip to Canada, and they were. It was up uh, just south of Franconia Notch on Route 3. I actually lived in that area also. I lived oh. uh, maybe four or five miles south of where the incident, uh, whatever it was, took place. I lived in, uh, that was in uh, Woodstock, Lincoln area. And I was in the next town south of that right. for 20 years, actually. Oh. Well, one thing that, that uh, people today might not realize if they're younger, and, and perhaps you could comment on, the, on this, Clint, is that in those days, I mean, I was eight years old in 1961 when the Betty and Barney Hill affair occurred. And uh, people at the time, uh, really up until uh, maybe about 10 years ago, uh, maybe maybe a little more, we're very, very reluctant to talk about this sort of thing. Uh, you have um, a lot of credibility on the line. And when I was working with a, a priest in uh, upstate New York at a, a state hospital where there were a lot of fluky phenomena going on, the doctors uh, would be supervising everything, but, th- but they would never in a million years mention it because a, you know, a doctor who believed in exorcisms and stuff, you know, that would have been a career wrecker. Uh, now, probably a little less so, uh, but anybody who sees a UFO today might, you know, wants to crow about it. Maybe, you know, maybe they want to get a, their own show or, or they want to have, they think they're going to make money with it. But in those days, it seems to me that uh, people were far more reluctant to admit any sort of a sighting, and one wonders how many may have occurred at the, in the seacoast area or elsewhere that people didn't report. So uh, what are your thoughts on how uh, attitudes toward UFOs have changed? Or do you think they have? Oh, no, I think they've significantly changed. As I you know, I mentioned that the two, the two school teachers who were working in the cruiser uptown came in to the, and they said, uh, you know, don't, uh, if anybody ever asked us, we'll yeah. deny that we yeah. ever saw it. Um, you know, and, and they hadn't really seen anything. I don't think that they would be criticized for claiming was was you know a UFO. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I think that I think that the attitude has uh, 
you know, has, has changed significantly. And I think, you know, part of it may be due to the fact that back, um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago that we sort of took the word of the government and the military um, at face value. We thought that they were telling the truth when they said that, uh, you know, something was um, what, what it was or what it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I, I think today that's, you know, part of that. Is, uh, but I, I think that there just have been so many sightings and there have been so many um, sightings by military personnel in aircraft that have seen, um, yeah. you know, and when I speak about, you know, the uh, the uh, incident at Exeter, I'm speaking specifically about the sightings and the 60-plus descriptions of what everybody saw, and they all described something that was, you know, was quite similar uh, in, in regards to the lights and the and the uh, and the aura and the shape and, and, and whatever. Regarding um, those sixty uh, odd witnesses, where geographically, what was the spread uh, of those reports? So was it just around the seacoast, or was it farther north, or into Maine, or Mass, or wherever? You know, it was all pretty much right in the stratum. Uh, this is all within Ogali. Oh a 20-mile, I would say, 10-mile huh. radius. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was all in the in the Hampton, Exeter, Portsmouth uh, area, and a lot of people said, well, you know, there is a nuclear power plant in Seabrook, mm-hmm. which is the next town south of both uh, uh, Exeter and Hampton. Yeah. But that plant wasn't, uh, wasn't even, construction wasn't completed until 1986. Right. And the plant, the plant didn't go active until 1990. Mm-hmm. That's right. So that, yeah, that was okay. well outside the parameters of the Exeter situation. But um, there are still a lot of uh, a lot of sightings in in the area. There, there are. Yeah. Uh, we we uh, consider ourselves part of the. Seacoast community, uh, in a way, because we're always there. I spent most summers in Maine as a kid, southern Maine, uh, in the York area, and uh, the, we have lots of friends, and uh, including yourself now, and, and I think that uh, we uh, hear it all when it comes um, to uh, our uh, appearances, public appearances there. People come up and they say they saw this, and including a man who <clears throat> we see every year who claims that there are is ground activity of a very mysterious kind around the Seabrook nuclear power plant. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, strange figures, things of this kind. Now, again, you know, everybody can't be crazy. So I mean, <laughs> some of the things we hear. But uh, in, in your conversations over the years about this or, or, or your, your pondering of the subject, Clint, do you have any inkling or, or any opinion on what the purpose, uh, assuming this was a craft, uh, the, the purpose might be? Uh, of whoever was piloting this thing in the middle of, uh, you know, over a field in uh, 1965. Wow. Um, There was a lot of speculation about the fact that these things were sighted in the vicinity of high power lines. Yes. And that... uh, that that may have been an attraction. Yeah, there have been but, reports uh, to that 
from other areas of the world uh, about these things feeding from power lines. Yeah, right. But other than that, this isn't a particularly active area that I could uh, that I could imagine, other than Pease Air Force Base. But, yeah, uh, it, it's interesting uh, to point out that, um, at least in our experience, and I, this could be coincidental, but I don't happen to believe in coincidence, that uh, some sixty percent of the generally speaking paranormal phenomena that we occur that that we uh, uncover or, or or investigate takes place within 200 feet or so of high power line high tension wires power lines of of, of that kind the um, I, I once as a reporter uh, in 19 in the late 70s uh, actually found out that if i took a uh, neon uh, or fluorescent t- tube uh, light, light of, of some kind, without even connecting to anything, I could stand under a power line in Warwick, Rhode Island, and it would light up. And it was, because the uh, the paper was involved in the controversy of them wanting to extend those lines, and, and I said, "My gosh, this, this can't be safe." So that was it made quite the picture in the paper, and um, you know, all sorts of a row, you know, took place after that. But um, it, the presence of power lines could very well affect electromagnetic energy, of course, which in turn affects, if you believe it the way we do, uh, space and time, uh, membranes of parallel worlds, membranes, as a physicist would say, of parallel worlds, I mean, if that is true. So um, the power line theory might be very, very, um, very valid. Uh, there is also, when I've also heard the opinion that whatever it was uh, could have been just uh, lost and or studying the officers and Mr. Muscarello. Uh, I don't know if you have an opinion on that, Clint, but I wanted to ask you uh, that as well as uh, did you know Mr. Muscarello, the the young fellow? He, and I believe he was 18. He had just graduated and he was about to enlist in the Navy. Um, if you um, know any more of his story than that, did other things happen to him? Did he join the Navy? I don't know if you were prepared to uh, with that information. Yeah, he did join the Navy. And um, he was um, he was at the. Uh, I don't know what happened to him. Uh, I don't know how his Navy career went, but I do know that um, that John Fuller was trying to get in touch with him um, a month or two subsequent to the incident, and he had he had left the area for the uh, basic training. Uh, the naval facility in uh, north of Chicago. Yeah, in Great Lakes. Yeah. Uh, oh, Great Lakes, right, exactly. And um, this, that uh, he was there, and uh, the Navy would not let uh, Fuller or any of the other uh, reporters who wanted to talk to him, they wouldn't give them access to Muscarello, which I thought was a little strange. Okay. Yeah, that that, that is odd. Uh, although if he if he were in the middle of basic, you know, he might not have had that kind of uh, access granted anyway. But uh, <clears throat> if it came after uh, he was, um, you know, uh, seaman and all this sort of, that would have been strange. Now, in uh, wondering about police and military um, protocols about these things. At the time of this incident, are you aware, or any time shortly thereafter, 
were there protocols established <clears throat> for the police as far as reporting UFOs were concerned? Because uh, I know that in the Coast Guard, uh, particularly when we were in the Caribbean, we were told if we saw anything, especially me, I was I was the uh, PR guy on the ship with, with the camera. Um, would you, you know, you, you report it up the chain of command, and then you keep your mouth shut, and you'll never hear about it again. That was essentially what we were told. So, what, what sort of protocols, if any, were in place at the time or subsequently, to your knowledge, uh, whether it be in the the local police or the FBI? That's interesting because I don't, I'm not aware of, of that being a component of any training program and, and I do quite a bit, uh, I'm still very involved. I have a, uh, um, uh, uh, um, a research, law enforcement, uh, uh, research. Yes, that's right. Project that I'm always involved in and, uh, and, um, I have a lot of contributors to uh, my blog, RadicalPolicing.com, and um, we do a lot with uh, training schedules, uh, and uh, I see absolutely nothing in there, and that's, uh, that's very interesting. It was interesting that, um, that Bertram, the officer involved in the Exeter uh, incident, said that he pulled his gun when he thought that the UFO was approaching him, and I don't really know what he thought he was going to do with his pistol. Yeah, I know. Uh, I've seen that illustration. First of all, he had a forty-five, which was not standard issue at the time, I, I understand. Yeah. Uh, well, back then, in, in 55, most of the local police officers weren't issued fire, weren't issued handguns. They, were, uh, they bought their own, so uh, there right, really yeah. wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't like the military. They didn't have protocol. Like on the Hampton Department, everybody had everything from twenty twos to forty fives. All right. So, uh, I'm thinking um, uh, there was a uh, a book. Uh, the uh, I believe it was called the Fire Officer's Guide to Disaster Control, which up until a few years ago had an entire section on what to do if there's a UFO crash in alien bodies that was actually in there. But it's one of those books that a civilian would never read or even see. But somebody apparently did see it, and it was uh, got all over the UFO community, and all of a sudden in the following issue it disappeared, the following edition. So, <laughs> But that was present in every first responder station in the country. Uh, for years, so there was apparently an awareness uh, of that. So uh, right. I don't know, but anyway, uh, we'll get you to comment on that on the next show, perhaps. But um, we're just about out of time. Clinton Rand, marvelous conversation. Thank you again for for all that service you've done, and uh, we look forward to speaking uh, with you further. Uh, all the best to you, Paul and Ben. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right, folks. Boy, that that's amazing. So, uh, then uh, take us away. Yes. So, we are uh, actually pretty excited to say that the Greater New England UFO Conference will be taking place at the uh, Wilton Town Hall Theater on Saturday and Sunday, October 10th and 11th. Uh, well, because of COVID restrictions, the event has limited attendance and will be a uh, Bigfoot and UFO film festival. Um, no speakers, no vendor tables. Uh, we will broadcast a live show from the venue on Sunday with special guests. Uh, Nigel Watson 
and uh, British UFO investigator. Uh, there will be a private dinner to honor my dad for his 50 years of paranormal research. So kudos to you, Father. You did it. You, well, you that's, stuck with um, it. <laughs> well, I'm still breathing, so... <laughs> That's, uh, I, th- I think we're being noticed more. It's, it's, it's terribly cynical to say, but we're being noticed a lot more on TV and stuff more because, uh, the, the, you know, unfortunately we've lost so many of the old timers in the past few years. So I guess I'm one of the few left. bound to happen sooner left. Or later, I suppose. Yeah, you know, I guess. Well, Stanton Friedman said that, uh, new ideas come in, uh, not because, uh, people accept them, but because the people, the old ideas die and the only ones left are the ones with the new ideas. You know, oddly, that's present in not just the paranormal, but, and, and. Certainly in science, and, yeah. And, and in science, and pretty much any field. Yeah. So anyway, the following week, uh, the uh, Western Connecticut UFO Conference will take place via Facebook Live on Saturday and Sunday, October 17th and 18th. This is a free annual event sponsored by the Danbury, Connecticut Public Library. Along with ourselves, speakers will include our own Shane Searway and Mark D'Antonio, along with Linda Zimmerman, Mark Panicello of Connecticut MUFON, and more. On Sunday, we will simulcast our show from here at WON with special guest Dr. Bill Burns of the UFO Hunters TV series, New York Times bestselling author and publisher of UFO Magazine. Uh, and, um, oh, I'm sorry, that's you. Oh, no, yeah, okay. Well, uh, additionally, we have word that the New England Parafest will take place on April 10th. Uh, and 11th, uh, 2021 in Kittery, Maine, and that we will do a live broadcast of this show with a panel of speakers from there on uh, Sunday, the 11th of April next year. Uh, more information will be forthcoming. And you can check out our books along with uh, those of our, our other co-hosts uh, at our show website that's behindtheparanormal.com, uh, where you can also find out uh, more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us, along with uh, some of our uh, 850 free recorded shows from our 12-plus years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And you can also find those, uh, basically our past shows, back to late 20, uh, 2009, I should say. Uh, those are available on all major podcast platforms. That includes YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, the Paranormal Radio app, uh, Spotify, and all of those, and we plan to have all those shows going back to 2008 onto all of those various platforms. I think we should bump that number up. It's almost 900 shows at this point. Uh, hey, you know, we, <laughs> you can't go wrong if you say plus. Right, that's right. <laughs> not technically wrong. So what do we have in store next week, Ben? Alrighty, so next week, September 20th, uh, we welcome back Rendlesham Forest Incident Witness uh, Steve LaPlume. Uh, Steve is Usually a guest co-host, but this time he'll join us to discuss his new tell-all book, which should be uh, a, a really fascinating show. Now, I've seen some of that because I saw the book in order to write an endorsement for the back cover, and uh, it, it's really very good. Uh, a lot of I, I know Steve as a person of great honesty and integrity, and I think it's going to be a, a great read. And we leave you today with a profound thought from dear old Albert Einstein. The important thing is not to stop questioning Curiosity has its own reason for existence. Hmm. What do you think of that, Ben? I mean, it's it's uh, d- definitely kind of a nice a nice sort of uh, bow on this on this lovely show that we did. I did not mean to rhyme that. I do. <laughs> That's I did. All right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, sometimes it just happens. <laughs> but uh, we also we forgot to mention our charities. Please, uh, oh, behind the paranormal dot yes. com. Please check out our charities. We know these people, and everything is uh, is uh, good. Uh, if you do donate money to them, it will go to the right place. Anyway, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. 
Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben.